The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny will be interviewing Annie Grace, who authored the book This Naked Mind Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life. This show is for anyone who has questioned whether drinking has become too big a part of their lives or worry that it may even be affecting their health. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, attorney turned life coach, Sunny Joy McMillan. We're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing coaches, teachers, authors, and healers who are on a mission to encourage you, inspire you, and give you tools to live a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives. They're found at 1150kknw.com. Um, and you can find out more about me and connect with me for coaching through my website, which is goldenoversoul.com. That's goldenoversoul.com. And don't forget, I am still, even though my book has officially been released and you can get the copy on Amazon that you can read in your hands at home if you don't like the digital stuff, um, but I am still offering the digital version for free at unhitchedbook.com. That's unhitchedbook.com. And of course, the book is called Unhitched, Unlock Your Courage and Clarity to Unstick Your Bad Marriage. Um, And it's really for anybody who is struggling in their marriage and um, answering those tough questions about what action you need and want to take um, and all the way through to how to end things gracefully if that is the route you decide to go. So I invite you guys to download that book for free while it's still up there at unhitchedbook.com. Um, So I want to go ahead and introduce you to our awesome guest today. Um, I've been really excited about this interview. Her name is Annie Grace, and she is the author of a book called This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life. Um, So just by way of background, you know, this topic is important to me. We've been talking about this a little on the show, especially if you've caught some of our first Friday shows where I've got my um, co-host, Dr. Alessandra Duke, um, and Um, I've really been exploring my relationship with alcohol. Um, I come from a long line of alcoholics and uh, substance substance abusers. Um, Most of the folks in the family, I'm trying to think if there's anybody still out there, most of them have been in AA and have been sober for many years, but um, lots of recovering alcoholics um, and folks from Narcotics Anonymous in, in my family. So my relationship with alcohol um, has been something that um, has always been on my mind at in some degree. But as of late, um, I have really begun exploring, you know, is alcohol really necessary for a full life? Like even, you know, at New Year's, toasts or a celebration, even if you're not drinking it regular, is, regularly, is it something that we really need? Because culturally, it, it seems like we get a lot of messages that it's a life enhancer. And I'm beginning to question that. So um, I was really excited to see Annie's book, um, which we're going to be discussing here today. Uh, And I'll just give you a little bit of background on her before we bring her on and and start our discussion. So Annie Grace grew up in a one-room log cabin without running water or electricity outside of Aspen, Colorado. She discovered a passion for marketing, and after graduating with a master's of science in marketing, she dove into corporate life. At the age of 26, Annie was the youngest vice president in a multinational company, and her drinking career began in earnest. At 35, in a global C-level marketing role, she was responsible for marketing in 28 countries and drinking almost two bottles of wine a night. Knowing she needed a change but unwilling to submit to a life of deprivation and stigma, Annie set out to find a painless way to regain control. Annie no longer drinks and has never been happier. She left her executive role to write this book, uh, the book we mentioned, This Naked Mind, and share This Naked Mind with the world. In her free time, Annie loves to ski, travel, so she's got 26 countries under her belt so far and counting, and also enjoy her beautiful family. Um, Annie lives with her husband and three children in the Colorado mountains. Find out more about her and the book at the website thisnakedmind.com. That's thisnakedmind.com. So, Annie, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Sunny. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Yes. Well, we're so happy to have you. Um, I've really been looking forward to this. And I, I uh, finished your book very quickly. I was engrossed by it and over the course of the last several days and uh, preparing for this interview. And I'm just really excited to bring um, your findings and your story to our listeners. Um, so why don't we just begin, like, you know, as by way of background, tell us about your relationship with alcohol before you wrote the book and more what it's like now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, before I wrote the book, it was interesting because I kind of was on both sides of the fence. I went through a lot of my teenage years, not really drinking very much, just the occasional party here and there, but definitely not being part of everyday life. And then even all through college, having alcohol be something that was, you know, maybe, maybe a few times a month at the outset, but really not something that was a very regular part of life. And it wasn't until I entered the career world and was almost, you know, told as part of being in advertising and then in marketing that, look, hey, this is actually a piece of things. This is part of how we network and connect and how we do things here. Uh, the bar is a lot like the golf course, and that's where the deals are done, et cetera, that I started actually drinking much more regularly. And it was really started very socially with networking, work events, colleagues, things like that. But very slowly, it started changing for me. And I would say little things happen. For instance, where I would have come home and put on my running shoes to de-stress after a long day, I would walk in the door, see that bottle of wine and be like, huh, well, I could just have a glass of that instead. And little by little, drinking at work became drinking at home. And so if you fast forward a decade, I was in charge of you know 28 countries traveling all around the world, really high-pressured, high-powered executive role and drinking between one and two bottles of wine every single night, whether it was at work or at home, and hadn't couldn't remember a time where I'd took the night off drinking for a long time, or if I had taken the night off, it caused me a big sense of missing out deprivation, something was missing. And it was at that point that I really started to question things and wonder, you know, what's going on here. And through that questioning journey, I ended up where I am today, which is I, I don't drink at all anymore. Yeah. And, and from everything that I can tell, and I trust what you're saying in your book, you have no sense of deprivation. You don't have those cravings and your life is much fuller and happier now as a result. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where even the questioning started for me was this point of like, okay, well, I remember being in college and having the time of my life without alcohol. I remember going on many vacations without alcohol and having a great time. I remember connecting, meeting new friends, you know, being <laughs> in my college job, being even in my first job. And I have all of these memories where I didn't need it. And so when I started to feel like I needed it or that it was this vital part of relaxing or having a good time or networking or even having sex, I was at a point where I was like, why, why is this? And admittedly, that question took me really about a decade to start to come to terms with that there was something, something different and something strange in that it didn't used to be the case in my own experience. And now it was because I didn't have the experience that I just drank ever since I first laid my hands on a bottle at, you know, 13 or 14, like you hear sometimes. Yeah. I had this bank of amazing experiences. Yeah. And it's interesting. So I shared a little bit in the intro um, and, and we have a lot of, I mean, gosh, both sides of my family, there is a long history of substance abuse and alcohol abuse um, and addiction. And um, most of the members of my family are all um, folks who have are in and around AA. Uh, my dad has been involved. I mean, we celebrate his AA sobriety birthday more than his biological birthday. He's very proud. I think he's got over 50 years now. Um, so, but the thing, the reason that I bring this up is because um, I'm curious for you, you know, for a lot of people, they will turn to a 12-step program or AA or NA. And did that, was that something you considered? Did it not work for you? Or what was your, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, because I didn't have a ton of thoughts on that, to be quite <laughs> frank yeah. with you. Uh, I had a few things, a few pieces of data. And one of them was um, my brother and some of his friends and their high school years got in trouble with the law. And so he had spent a little bit of time in prison as a juvenile and then um, as a very early adult. And he was forced to go to AA meetings. And so I knew what he told me, which was this, I am forced to go there. And he was always a big person of not being powerless. And so he's like, I, it's so frustrating because I have to say I'm an alcoholic and that I'm powerless over alcohol. And he just thought that was 
frankly, BS. So that was his perspective. And that was kind of filtering into my life in my early, you know, mm-hmm. early 20s. But also I had no, I wasn't really drinking then. So that was kind of just stored away. And then when I was drinking pretty heavily, I would say um, probably five or six years into really regular drinking, I had a very close friend who up and went to AA and got sober kind of on a dime. And she came and told us, like announced that she'd gone to AA and she was now sober. And I was like, oh my gosh, wow, well, what about, what about me? I mean, we drink together, you know, and I was very inquisitive and very concerned and very curious and uh, very panicked all at once (laughs) because I thought, oh my gosh, (laughs) this must mean something. And um, she said, Annie, you know, I've learned in these meetings that um, I'm an alcoholic. I was born this way and you're not. And, um, and so I was like, okay, cool. Well, I guess that's great. I'm going (laughs) to carry on my merry way. But then it was also this nagging feeling of, but I'm still not loving how I'm drinking. And I continued to drink for another probably five or six years after that because it it really, and I never, I never once crossed my mind, maybe I should go walk into an AA meeting during that period of time. I mean, I'd been sort of told by someone who I thought would know that I didn't kind of fit there. Yeah. And interestingly, as people come towards me and share their story with me, I think this is a story of a, a lot of people. There's a staggering statistic by the Center for Disease Control that says only 10% of excessive drinkers, so for women that's more than eight drinks per week and for men it's more than 15, only 10% are actually chemically addicted or clinically addicted to alcohol. Mm. And so this 90% um, isn't even necessarily going to feel welcome in AA. You know, she never invited me to come. It was never a thing of my drinking because I was so high functioning. I hit it so well. I never had any sort of bottom. It, it wasn't that story or that journey. And so there was never even a, a place of invitation in my life. And not that that's wrong or right or anything, because I think it's a beautiful place and it's done such incredible things in her life. But that's just been my experience. Yeah. And I'm really, I, this was one of the reasons I was attracted to your work is because I'm very interested in um, the mind body connection, the power of the mind, our neurochemistry. And I really like um, how you approach this. And I just, before we move on to that, I did just want to point out because I didn't realize this, um, that you had included a statistic in your book um, that was from uh, Dr. Lance Dodes or Dodies. I'm not sure I got the name right. Um, He is a recently retired professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and he says that peer-reviewed studies peg the success rate of AA somewhere between 5 and 10 percent. About one of every 15 people who enter these programs is able to become and stay sober, and that doesn't that statistic surprised me. I thought I thought more people would have been uh, able to stay sober, and so I I. Um, when I saw how you're approaching it, basically by changing the unconscious mind, um, or actually, why don't you tell us a little bit about what makes your approach unique or how you approached it? Yeah, absolutely. And just to comment on that statistic, a lot of people are forced into AA. Right. And so I think that really brings down that statistic because that's not of 15 people who are there voluntarily wanting to make a change in their life. Yeah. That could be 10 of those 15 people have been court ordered uh, um, yeah. or, you know, pressured by a friend or family member. And of course that the propensity to change when it's not internal is so different. So I just wanted to throw that out there because that is, that is statistic, but I think it should be, you know, treated with um, the context it deserves, but that's so, that's such a good point. Thank you. And uh, yeah, in terms of my method. So what had happened to me, I'll tell you a little bit of a backstory because I think it really fills in the details, but at the same time that I was really struggling with these questions around my drinking and they weren't big questions. They were little, very needly, sharp, painful questions. So for instance, things would be happening in my life where my four-year-old wouldn't want to get on my lap because my teeth were purple. And, you know, just these little things that, yeah, I wasn't necessarily getting in the car with him drunk, but also I was creating distance in other ways. And it was things that we could laugh about with all my wine drinking girlfriends But then I wasn't really laughing about when I was by myself alone. And those sort of things started to pile up. Um, And right at around the same time, after my second son was born, I did something to my back, picking him up, putting him down, and I just 
I tweaked it very, very badly. And it ended up being years and years of back pain from this one incident. And it was so strange because after the initial incident was healed, the pain continued. And so I would do x-rays and I would have, you know, traction and chiropractic and medical doctors, muscle relaxants, all these things. And the pain seemed to have healed. I didn't have a compressed disc. I didn't have any nerve pinch, none of these symptoms, but I was still in incredibly crippling pain. And so I was really desperate. I had tried everything, spent tens of thousands of dollars trying to fix my back because it's such a crippling thing. And uh, somebody recommended to me a book called Healing Back Pain by Dr. John Sarno. And the premise in this book is that, look, you know, yes, pain can start from an event, but our backs are strong and they heal, but the mind can actually go ahead and latch on to that pain and continuing that pain in a very real way. You can actually, the brain can deprive the muscles of oxygen, which is incredibly painful, and show up pain long after any injury has not has been healed. And, and why is this? Why would this be the case? Well, the theory he puts forward is that often we have things inside of ourselves that we think or that we say internally that we don't approve of or like. So for instance, if my baby's crying at two in the morning and I'm so frustrated with it and I'm so exhausted, it's not cool for me to say, even in my own head, oh, I hate having kids. That's not in line or congruent with who I believe myself to be in the world, AKA a good mom. Mm -hmm. And so in order to suppress those things, the body can cause pain as a distraction from those deeper feelings in order to really repress them. And so I was like, okay, that's possible. I certainly have, you know, a lot of stress in my life right now. And he said, you know, I can't cure your pain by speaking to your conscious mind. I need to speak to the subconscious mind. I need to actually change how like how the mind is viewing this pain. And in order to do that, you have to read this 300-page book. And so I was super skeptical, but I was really desperate. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to read it. And I read the book, and the most miraculous thing happened in my life is my back pain literally went away almost overnight. It was within two to three weeks that I was picking up my kids, even jumping on the trampoline. We were moving at the time. I was helping my husband move. It was insanely cool and miraculous. It was the first time that I had really had my eyes open to the power of the mind and understanding, wow, there is something here that I never even realized. And a few, um, I'd say even it was probably a few months to a year after that, I kind of had this moment where I was like, wait a second, I have this experience where I didn't used to need alcohol. I didn't used to feel deprived or that it was a part of life. I have this experience now where if I don't even drink for a single day, I'm feeling grumpy and deprived and like I'm missing out on something crucial. And um, maybe it's that, you know, my conscious mind really wants to make a change in my drinking because of all these negative ways it's manifesting in my life. But subconsciously, I just haven't got the memo. I've been now conditioned by a decade or more of not only the media and our society, but even more so my own experiences and the chemically addictive nature of alcohol to where I have these two competing lines of thought in my brain. I both want to drink more and less at the same time. Hmm. I both think alcohol is the answer to all of my problems and the duct tape that's keeping my life together and have the suspicion that it's pulling everything apart at the same time. And so I just felt like I had this deep internal conflict and divide around my drinking. And that divide was causing a lot of pain. And what do we drinkers do when we're in pain? <laughs> if we've been using it to self-medicate is we drink more. And so I sort of identified this spiral I was on. And I actually got in touch with people who um, work with Dr. Sarno and said, would this work for addiction? And they said, yes, Dr. Sarno's always said this would work. It's the same, same sort of mechanisms going on when you're talking about the psychological aspect of addiction, because by the way, physically alcohol is out of our body within seven to 10 days. So it doesn't make any sense that then you're craving it, you know, years later in right. some cases, decades later. And yes, I really started exploring that theory in detail. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, a lot of the mind-body work that I learned in coach training, as well as uh, many of the folks I've interviewed on this show, uh, Dr. John Sarno's work has been just foundational um, in his work on the mind-body syndrome. Um, and so basically, your approach, I'm just reading here from the book, um, the, Annie's approach is, by changing your unconscious mind, we eliminate your desire to drink. Without desire, there's no temptation. Without temptation, there is no addiction. 
So basically, you're rewiring the unconscious mind um, to change everything. Yeah, exactly. Really going in and rooting out some of the beliefs that we've held true. I mean, I had beliefs about alcohol, you know, that it relaxed me. I believe that like I believe the sky was blue and the sun rose in the morning. There was no question in my mind that that was true. And that was one of my main reasons for pouring a glass every day when I got out of um out of the office. And so when I started to really look and say, okay, is that true? Is that actually true? Does the evidence support it? And does my experience truly support that? That's when not only consciously I could change, but far more powerfully, when you change your subconscious feelings, when you change your subconscious thinking, your feelings begin to change. And that's why I say without temptation, without desire, there's no temptation because it isn't that, you know, human beings, we do things for one reason mainly, and that's because we feel like doing them. And yeah, certainly you can sit there and say, okay, well, I don't feel like going to the dentist. So we can use our willpower over a finite period of time to do something we don't feel like doing, but ultimately to maintain something long-term, we have to get some sense of, yes, I want to do this, whether it's for whatever reason we put out there. And so really, if I was pouring a drink because I felt like it relaxed me, but then I'm able to fully understand it, all parts of my brain and body that, okay, that's just not true. It's really hard then to feel like pouring a drink when I'm stressed out because I know without a doubt that it's going to make things worse. Yeah. And so you use the term in the book, liminal thinking. Um, and is that, that's basically the exploration, conscious exploration of new ideas that then influence the unconscious mind? Yeah, absolutely. So um, liminal thinking came from a man that I sort of met while I was writing the book named Dave Gray. And he had kind of codified this process of going into your subconscious or going into your, you know, subliminal. So liminal, he says, is the the space between conscious and subconscious. It's this liminal space. It's this in-between space. And the theory is that if you can go in and pull things out of the subconscious for conscious examination, so identify beliefs that you don't even know you have and do the questioning and the work to identify them. I didn't even realize that um, there could be any point in which the idea that alcohol relaxed me could have been false. (laughs) But when I pulled that out and really started to examine it, then it changes, you know, in that liminal space, you're able to change your subconscious conditioning. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and it, it reminded me a little bit, I, I really like um, Byron Katie's work, her system of inquiry for exploring those beliefs that um, are, are causing us pain, discomfort, or not just serving us in our lives, basically. Um, so I want to get into, actually, why don't we do this? Um, let's take our break. And when we come back, um, I want to dive into one of my favorite chapters from the book, which is really how alcohol actually affects us. Like what we don't often hear, uh, especially with all the advertising out there promoting how awesome alcohol is for our lives. We don't hear the effects that it has on our brain, our body, our immune function, all of that good stuff. So I'd like to explore that um, when we return from the break. Um So I am here today with Annie Grace. She is the author of the book, This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life. Um, The website to check out her work and the book is thisnakedmind.com. You are listening to Sunny in Seattle. We'll be back in just a few. Are you ready to get unstuck from a bad marriage and embrace your best life? If you're anything like me, you may have spent years creating a life that looks pretty good on paper. There's just one problem. Your marriage is unhappy and unfulfilling, but you're too scared to trade your comfortable life for a future full of unknowns. In my new book, Unhitched, I will give you the tools you need to make the right decisions about your marriage, as well as the confidence that your future can be better and brighter than you can even imagine. I share my own very personal story, and I will guide you through a clear process that will enable you to answer the question, should I stay or should I go? It's a process that will help you tune out fears and unwanted advice, and instead tune into your own intuition and inner wisdom, as well as exit a marriage gracefully and feel secure about your future. Get ready to trade confusion and stagnation for your best life. Unhitched, unlock your courage and clarity and unstick your bad marriage. Available for pre-order today on Amazon.com. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man. 
your worst man. You, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Climate change is a high priority for many Americans. But on election days, many of those passionate environmentalists do not vote. We've identified 10.1 million who didn't even vote in the 2016 presidential election an election that was only decided by 77,000 votes. So this is an enormous population of environmentalists just waiting to be energized. That's Nathaniel Stinnett of the Environmental Voter Project. His organization contacts these unlikely voters, Republican, Democrat, or Independent, with one simple message. Get to the polls. We don't lobby politicians. We don't endorse candidates. We don't even try to persuade people to care more about climate because these voters are already environmentalists. And now we can just concentrate on tweaking their behavior and getting them to vote. Stinnett's group is focusing on potential voters in Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Massachusetts, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. Our goal over the next two, three, four years in these states is to so change the electorate that no politician can run for anything without paying attention to climate change in the environment. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. Alternative Talk 1150 is your sports organization's safe bet when it comes to airing your team's games. Our players are all seasoned professionals when it comes to sports programming. Imagine your games being heard on local radio. Your team deserves the MVP treatment. Call 425-653-1150 today to learn how affordable and fun it is to broadcast your games on the radio. Call 425-653-1150 and make your next season something special. That's 425-653-1150. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy. I am joined today by author Annie Grace. Uh, we're talking about her fantastic book, This Naked Mind. Control alcohol, find freedom, discover happiness, and change your life. Um, so part of the, your approach involves really taking out those beliefs from the unconscious and examining them and seeing if they're actually true. And I think one of the ones, the biggies, that um, I at least found in my life was that, oh, alcohol alcohol could be healthy. Alcohol might um, lower your cholesterol. Alcohol is relaxing. Alcohol makes you more fun at parties. All of those beliefs that I think we are either implicitly or explicitly given from a pretty young age, if you, especially if you live in our culture, um, that those may not be true. And you really offered a beautiful chapter on the effects of alcohol on the body. Um, you know, from what you found, Annie, what are the things that you, you know, many people aren't aware of that were very important in helping you unwind all that unconscious programming that alcohol was making your life better? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like there's a few things sort of to address. First of all, there's so much I guess, misinformation. And it's not necessarily intentional misinformation, although I will argue that some of it is. But basically what will happen is there will be a study, for instance, on the effects of a chemical called resveratrol, which is a chemical in red wine. And there will be a study on mice and it will say, okay, well, actually, mice that have more of this chemical in their bodies have better heart health. And then all of a sudden we see all these articles splashing all over the newspaper or all over the internet saying alcohol, red wine's good for your heart. And so this idea that like red wine is good for your heart has been so prevalent that, I mean, even people 
who has never even picked up a study of anything will say, oh yeah, that's true because it's become in the body of what we call common knowledge. And we just know that that's true because it must be enough people know it that we've heard it somewhere. And of course it's true. Uh, interestingly, they did a study on human beings on this very thing to see if this chemical resveratrol actually did contribute to heart health and it didn't have any connection whatsoever with heart health. So, but that study was not widely shared. It was not widely communicated. Right. And that just goes to, you know, two things, our headline culture, people in the media, they publish things that are going to get clicks, they're going to get likes, they're going to get shares. And if you know anything about the science of sharing, people will share things that they feel are um, going to enhance their persona. So it's like social currency. Is this going to make me look smart or cool or righteously angry or justified? Or is it going to confirm something that I'm already doing as right and good? And if it is, then it's going to make me feel good and it's going to make my friends feel good. So if I'm already drinking a few glasses of wine a night and I share something like you know, red wine is good for your heart, that does all of those things. It makes me look smart because I've shared a study. It makes, it confirms my, you know, what's called confirmation bias. It, it, allows me to agree with myself about what I'm already doing is good. And there's all sorts of studies like this. I mean, the ones from alcohol helps us live longer or alcohol prevents dementia. And often when you look into what the study actually was, sometimes the scientists are actually quite frustrated that what they've put forward has been taken so far out of context or the study might have been something about something else entirely, and it just happened to be that a few of the people were drinkers or not drinkers. And people literally comb through some of these things to say, okay, what can we put forward as true in order to make sure that alcohol maintains this you know, perception of being somewhat healthy. So there's so many things like that, and we could dig into that all day, but the reality is that there is just a ton of misinformation out there, and it's very confusing. And we really can't blame ourselves from being misinformed because uh, they've, that information has actually been compiled by, from studies. It's just that the studies may have been misinterpreted or they are often far outweighed. There was a statistic that I believe it was 10 to 1 in terms of studies about the harms of alcohol versus any so-called benefits. And those studies don't show up in the news very, very infrequently. There was a study just in 2018 and it was a millions of people. It was called what's a meta-analysis. So it looked at a study of studies, including its own sort of evidence. And it declared that there's no safe level of drinking, that even moderate drinking is harmful. And when it comes to alcohol and cancer, for instance, alcohol was declared a known carcinogen in 1988. Yet very few people actually understand that alcohol causes cancer and that just two drinks per week can increase a woman's chance of breast cancer by 15%. And these things just aren't well known. And so sometimes we do, we are swimming upstream to educate ourselves about some of the harms of alcohol. I mean, a really great example of how this is and the fact that there's so much, you know, real financial attributes involved in this, political mm -hmm. attributes, we don't have to really have any disclaimers in most states on alcohol bottles. So it doesn't have to say that there's a chance of getting cancer. There's no warnings. Even on Tylenol, you're going to have warnings, you know, certain things about your health or don't use it in this, or there may be the liver adverse liver failure or whatever the case is. And certainly on any pharmaceuticals, if you turn on the television, any pharmaceutical commercial is going to have this litany. Half the commercial is dedicated, it seems, to side effects and warnings. But all you have to really see on an alcohol commercial is drink responsibly, which was originated by the alcohol industry as a way to not have to put any of the warnings on any of the bottles. If they said drink responsibly, then they were covered. We don't even have to have nutritional labels on alcohol bottles at this point. So forget the warnings. You know, They're not even telling us how many calories are in a bottle at this point. So we're very unaware about the thing we, as adults in America, drink pretty much more than anything else. Yeah, and I wanted to just share also, this is a quote from the book on uh, overall harm, um, and I had no idea. I, this, it does not surprise me when I read it, when I read it but it, it, I definitely don't think that it's in mainstream, um, I guess, uh, speak around this, around alcohol. So researchers scored 20 drugs on criteria related to overall harm, considering both the harm to the user and the harm to the people who are around the user but not actually using the drug. The majority of the criteria related to the specific harm to an individual. Overall, 
alcohol scored as the most harmful drug with an overall harm score of 72. Heroin came in second with a harm score of 55, and crack cocaine scored third with a score of 54. So it's like alcohol was by far and away the one with the most harm, which is just bananas to me how <laughs> this is not something yeah. we talk about. And there's a, another study um, with the same thing, just which one is the most harmful. And this other study was called the margin of exposure approach. And it not only took the overall harm, but it also took that combined with how many people are exposed to it and then what harm it does in society as a result. So just, you know, if obviously somebody who's killed in a drunk driving accident might not be the drinker. And so it took that into account. And of course, then when we looked at that, obviously, again, alcohol was completely on top as being the most harmful drug. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about your process. I know we've addressed it in terms of, you know, you go for the unconscious mind, unwind those beliefs that are clouding um, our conscious mind and activity. And um, you know, really remove that desire altogether. But how, you know, having read the book, it's, it's, there's a progression there. And you say that, you know, the materials presented and there are a lot of the things that are really important are repeated throughout the book. You've got liminal points in the book that are really important. So can you tell us a little bit about if someone were to buy this book because they're, you know, they haven't found that their life has become completely unmanageable, but they do question whether their drinking might be something to look at. How do you work with people and how does your book approach it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the first things that my work does that's really important is just, you know, it, it establishes a baseline for what this is like in our society. Because I think that at this point in time, I know in my experience, I felt incredibly alone in this. I felt like either A, you fall into this category of people who have a, quote, real problem and you can find a home sort of in AA or B, you fall into this other category of quote, normal drinkers and you, it shouldn't cause any problem at all. And so I was in this huge gray area of feeling like, okay, I've got problems, but I know that I can also stop for periods of time. I know that I don't fit this criteria or this criteria that at least was in my mind at the time of a quote alcoholic. And so where do I go? And I think the first thing really do is just establishing that, look, there's millions and millions of people exactly where you are. If you're questioning your drinking at all, even just a little bit, chances are so are your friends, so are the people you drink with. It's just that for some reason in our society, we've made it incredibly taboo. We can sit here and talk about how many carbohydrates or calories are in that donut, but we're not going to talk about the fact that we're only you know, going to limit ourselves to one glass of Chardonnay because of the liver failure and breast cancer. I mean, these things just aren't talked about. And if you even bring it up, like, oh, I've been thinking about this, people go, oh, I didn't know you had a problem. And I think it's huge divide and this lack of just general conversation around something we should all be talking about if we're all going to be drinking, you know, as much as our, our culture drinks, which upwards of 87% of Americans drink alcohol at some point in their lives. So it's a huge majority. So I think that's really where we start is just kind of understanding that we're not alone and we're completely normal in this. And then we dig into the actual method, which is looking through every single reason that you give yourself for drinking alcohol? What are all your reasons? What are all the things that you tell ourselves, all our beliefs about what the drink does for us, why we like to do it? And then we really deconstruct those in that liminal thinking process. So it's a very methodical process where we say, okay, in, and very similar, I hadn't read Byron Katie's work when I wrote This Naked Mind, but I've read it since. And it's very similar and incorporates uh, very beautifully where we just literally ask, is this true and go into the internal evidence. Like if we take the belief, for example, alcohol relaxes me, which was, oh my gosh, that was my, my linchpin of my drinking mm -hmm. in my later years. In the early time, it was because it was fun. We're all going out. We're having a good time. But in the later years, it was because I needed it. It relaxed me. It helped me be a better mom. It helped me handle my kids, all of these things that really centered around stress. And so if I take that belief and I really reflect internally and I ask myself, okay, you know, I might feel more relaxed after a drink because alcohol is an anesthetic. It numbs my brain. It makes me think slower, thinking slower. If all my thoughts are super negative and toxic and on a, you know, hamster wheel, then taking some of those thoughts and making them go away is certainly going to feel like relaxation. But then how do I feel 20 minutes later? How do I feel an hour later? How do I feel the next morning? Am I more or less, 
less relaxed? And how am I in my life overall? Is my life now drinking as much as I'm drinking more or less relaxing? You know, am I more or less stressed? Uh, what about the physical effects? You know, how stressful is it to handle my kids in the morning when I have a hangover? And so when you start to look at the bigger picture, it's like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. But then it really gets fascinating when we start to dig into what I call the external evidence. And that's just the the studies about, is this true? So alcohol is one of these crazy substances that is both a depressant and a stimulant at the same time. And the depressant, you know, factor, we're, we're aware of these what a depressant does, you know, it, it lowers your mood, it lowers different things in your body. A stimulant, on the other hand, is going to actually make you feel a little bit more energy for an amount of time. And so alcohol works as a stimulant and a, a depressant because when you're drinking, initially your blood alcohol content is rising, your BAC, it's going up. And that is the tipsy, the lack of inhibition, the euphoria. It's stimulating um, your pleasure center of your brain at artificially high levels. And so this is happening as your BAC is rising, which happens for, you know, 20 to 40 minutes on a drink. And then as your BAC levels out and starts to fall, which happens for one drink for two to three hours. So right there, it's a completely unfair trade. You're trading 20 to 30 minutes of nice feelings for two to three hours of the BAC falling feelings, which are restlessness, anxiety, uh, feeling upset, feeling tired, feeling lethargic, feeling not okay in your own skin, the feeling that something's missing, uh, stress, et cetera. All of these feelings are happening. And, and so you look at that and you're like, wow, Okay, so I'm, I'm trading a little bit of what feels like or masquerades as relaxation. It's not actually eliminating anything stressful in my life. In fact, if I have a stressful event in my life, I'm less motivated to deal with it or handle it or make it right after a few drinks than I am before a few drinks because I've numbed the, the symptom. And so I'm less motivated to handle the cause. And so that really perpetuates. The other thing that happens, though, that really was kind of the icing on the cake for this conversation was that alcohol, as your BAC is falling, in order to counteract those depressant aspects of alcohol, your body releases stimulants to counteract that. And those are adrenaline and cortisol. And cortisol, we know this because it's the stress hormone. It's the thing that, that makes us you know, feel most stressed. And so you're actually releasing additional stress hormones in your body when you drink. And so once you're faced with that evidence and you've explored it internally in your own life, you've asked yourself those questions, but then you've explored it externally and sort of scientifically and said, okay, how can it really be relaxing me or making my life less stressful when it's actually releasing cortisol in my body every single time I drink? It is really hard to pick up a drink for relaxation in the future. Yeah. And one of the things, I, there's another teacher that I follow. Her name is Brooke Castillo, and she teaches a course on stopping over drinking. And she really looks at the neurochemistry and the, the science behind addiction. And um, I, I like her approach. But one of the things that I, and I noticed some similarities, um, and it's a concept that I'm still trying to get my mind around. And so I was hoping you could maybe talk about it a little bit, is this idea that, that, that it's not the alcohol that is creating um, the the good feelings necessarily it's it's and you write that this is the key to all drug addiction the drug creates the low then deceives its victims into believing that by ending the low it is providing a high so it's one of those things where it's really my understanding it's messing with your neurochemistry such that it's it's perpetuating the need for itself without actually doing anything good for you I don't know if that I'm articulating that well but I was hoping you could speak to that yeah, absolutely. So one of the ways that this does this, and it does it in a lot of ways, and I'll give you kind of the the big picture of, of this, and then we'll dive specifically into alcohol. But if we were to go up to somebody who was going through a heroin withdrawal, for instance, and we see somebody, and they're shaking, and they're really jonesing, and they're feeling absolutely miserable, and in their mind, the only answer to them feeling that miserable, the only thing that's going to make them feel better is heroin. So in their mind, heroin is the answer. It is the thing that's going to help, right? But if you're approaching it from an external perspective and you're looking at this person and you, you aren't in the midst of that addiction, you're going to look at this person and you're not going to see that heroin's the cure. You're going to see that heroin is actually what caused everything in the first place. And it's very similar with alcohol. You know, 
I was very stressed and alcohol seemed like, okay, at the end of the day, the only thing that um, I'm looking forward to is this glass of wine because that's really going to calm my nerves and that's really going to make me feel better. Well, that entire feeling of needing that glass of wine and that being the only thing that was going to make me feel better was caused by the prior glasses of wine I had drank. So it's really this cycle. And we can look at it a little more scientifically. So there's um, a chemical in the brain it's a fascinating chemical um, called dynorphin. And in order to talk to you about dynorphin, I have to back up a little bit and talk to you about um, how alcohol works on the brain. And so alcohol, one of the things that it does, and every addictive drug does this, is it overstimulates and at artificially high levels our pleasure circuit of our brain. And so we drink something and it makes us feel you know, euphoric, the endorphins, that overstimulation of the pleasure center. And so you're saying, okay, well, yeah, duh. That's why we drink alcohol. That's great. Like, that's the point of anything <laughs> addictive is to get all that overstimulation of pleasure. And it's like, okay, obviously. Yes, obviously. But what we don't see is that the brain is always fighting to maintain homeostasis, which is balance. And that's just to keep us alive. You know, if we get too hot, we sweat. It brings our body temperature back down. And so if we overstimulate artificially, certain parts of the brain, the brain is going to say, whoa, 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 we need to bring that back down because we need to stay in balance in order to survive. And so the brain releases dynorphin, which is this counter chemical. And it might sound familiar because you can think of it as basically the opposite of endorphin. Mm. And dynorphin is something that diminishes the pleasure um, that you're experiencing. Now, the problem comes for a few reasons. Number one, your body becomes adept to the fact that you're going to drink. It actually can predict it. And so it can pre-release dynorphin even when you don't drink. So if you try to take a night off where your routine what? has been drinking at a regular time of day, you're going to feel bad because you have now this dynorphin in your system, but no alcohol to counteract it. Now, in layman's terms, this is tolerance. This is what happens is we become tolerant to addictive substances. Um, you know, we don't become tolerant to meals. We don't need more food. Every time I eat <laughs> pasta, I don't need to eat twice as much pasta to get the same feeling of fullness as I did before. It just doesn't work that way, right? Yeah. But when something's addictive, we need more of it to get the same feeling. That is just an indication that our body is trying to counterbalance it. It's basically creating an immunity to it. Our bodies create immunities to things that are harmful for us. And so we need more of the same thing. So over time, we drink more. More dynorphin is released. More dynorphin can be released at any time. Dynorphin takes a lot longer to leave our bodies than alcohol for one reason, many reasons. But one of them is the fact that alcohol is a toxin. Your body actually stops even digesting food to rid, rid itself of alcohol because really? it needs to get it out as job one. Yes, it's one of the reasons alcohol can contribute to weight gain. It's fascinating. But in order to rid itself of, of um, alcohol, your body will stop doing all sorts of other things. Your liver even stops regulating your blood sugar because it's now only job is to get rid of the alcohol. But dynorphin is something that happens naturally occurring in your body. It's not a toxin yet. Yes, it doesn't make you feel great, but it's not going to be purged immediately. It's going to just naturally run its course. And so you can have dynorphin literally ever present in your body when you're drinking on a regular basis. The problem with this, as you can see, is that you can't, you can't numb indiscriminately. You can't use alcohol to numb the things that you're feeling bad about and not also by way of this, how your brain reacts to it, numb the things that you're feeling good about. So if you have dynorphin ever present in your body, all the things that you used to do for pleasure, going for a walk, you know, um, making love, watching a movie, meeting a new friend, all of these things, they just don't register like they used to. And this really confirms our belief that, oh, well, it's the alcohol. Don't, I'm not happy having fun at this party because I'm not drinking. Well, no, <laughs> it's because of all the drinking you've done before. And now you've created this barrier to having fun in general inside your own brain. And you need to let that reset and reheal. And when people do that, when people do, um, you know, I have something called the alcohol experiment, which is just a free 30 day break from alcohol that you can do. And every day I guide you with like a video. And when people do this sort of stuff, they start to see, oh my gosh, it isn't that a football game is only fun because of the beers. It's actually fun to go to a football game with all my friends. And it's this huge, uh, really life-affirming epiphany that people have around, around drinking. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to uh, mention here, because I know we're getting 
kind of close to the end of our hour, um, that the website, if you're interested in participating in that 30-day experiment, it's called alcoholexperiment.com. That's alcoholexperiment.com. And I also just wanted to mention, Annie, you run a community. It's called thisnakedmindcommunity.com. ThisNakedMindCommunity.com. If you want to go there, can you tell folks a little bit about what you what you do there if they're looking for a little support? Yeah, it's just really a reader-led community, so there isn't a lot of sort of intervention, um, but it's amazing. There's thousands and tens of thousands of people, and they just really put their arms around you. They're incredible, and there's just lots of support. It's off Facebook, so it's completely anonymous, and you can really join under just with the name and an email address or a pseudonym and a, you know, and then you can just really have the accountability and the support. And again, just normalize the conversation realize that you're completely not alone in this, that if you're struggling with this, chances are that everybody you're drinking with is also questioning it. It's just that none of us have had, um, we've been told in our society that it isn't something we should be talking about. Right. Yeah. And in our final few minutes, I did. I want to read a quote from the book because um, I know there might be folks out there who are wondering, well, is is moderation a viable option? And so I'll just share this quote. And if you want to speak to that as we bring our show close to the end, that would be awesome. Um, so Annie writes, there is no halfway once you are addicted. Your brain physically and chemically changes, which makes moderation next to impossible. If your brain hasn't suffered chemical changes, they can happen at any time. It is the accumulation of alcohol in your body, no matter how little you drink each time, that creates pathways of addiction in your brain. The problem with alcohol is that the brain doesn't simply forget it. Dopamine is the learning molecule, and your brain has learned to crave alcohol. You can abstain, and these cravings will disappear, but if you drink again, your brain immediately remembers. A conditioned response usually stays. Um, so, Annie, you know, we've got about <laughs> – I didn't mean to open a can of worms with very little time left, but we've got about a minute left. Um, do you mind speaking to that moderation quote? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that is true. I think that some people find that, yes, they can moderate. And the truth is that they just hadn't been drinking for long enough to enact those chemical changes in the brain where the dopamine receptors, you can literally have them go away. Mm. So your brain does awaken this very fierce craving and addiction, even just with one drink. And so it's just something that we need to be much more mindful and much more careful about in general uh, to prevent stuff like that from really taking hold in our lives and taking over. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that stood out to me is if I even if I'm telling myself, oh, I only have a drink because I, I limit myself these days um, to one day a week, usually maybe two if it's around the holidays or something. But even that I'm beginning to notice, um, especially after reading your book, I just don't know that it's worth it anymore. But we'll, <laughs> I will continue my curiosity around this. And your work um, has just um, really been um really important for me at this point, Annie, and I know it will continue to be, and I hope it has been for folks out there who are listening. Um, I have been joined today by Annie Grace, author of the book, This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life. The website is thisnakedmind.com. Annie, thanks for being here today. Thank you so much. Okay, take care, everybody. Uh, You've been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, signing off. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.